ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. Talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. And I'm just a citizen of this country who thinks that this is a good idea. And I'm Aboriginal as well. And I think it's a good idea for my people. And I'm Aboriginal. I live in my community in Alice Springs. I see the suffering of my people walks past my door every day. I live right in town. You know, I want things to change. And I think this voice is a possibility of gaining change. In conversation with Rachel Perkins. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Rachel Perkins has dedicated her life to telling First Nations stories and sharing our history with broader Australia. From documentaries such as First Australians and The Australian Wars to feature films like Jasper Jones' Brand New Day and TV drama series Total Control and Mystery Road, Rachel's directed many of our major works on screen. She's a very prominent figure in the film and TV world, but lately Rachel's taken to a different stage. She's been campaigning hard for the voice to Parliament. She's co-chair of the Yes 23 board. This pivot from arts to politics is not so surprising when you consider her upbringing. Rachel's father was the civil rights activist Charles Perkins. He was an Arundel and Kalkadoon man from Alice Springs, Central Australia. Charles Perkins was one of the first Indigenous people to graduate from university and in 1965 he organised the Freedom Ride. His student bus tour around New South Wales drew attention to inequalities in Aboriginal health, housing and education. Rachel Perkins, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, Larissa. Can we start by getting you to reflect on where you grew up and what really shaped your values and sense of social justice? Oh, that's a deep question straight off the bat. (laughs) Um, Well, I grew up, I blame the 1967 referendum actually for where I grew up. I grew up in Ngunnawal, Ngambri country mostly in Canberra. Uh, because my family moved there when the Commonwealth, when the referendum happened and the Commonwealth took over sort of making laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we moved to Canberra to be sort of at the centre of power because my dad was Charlie Perkins and he wanted to make a change and he thought Canberra was where it was at. So we moved there. But we every year we'd go back to Alice Springs, which is his grand, his mother's country and his grandmother's country because that's sort of, well, that's our country and it's his sort of spiritual home. So we were always going back there to visit his mother, visit family and living there from time to time as well. So we had a sort of a quite a strange strange sort of dual existence that would go between Alice and Canberra, one extreme to the other. But I think in terms of our values, I suppose it gave me the ability to sort of see two different worlds and I think the potential for changing the world, which is what was, you know, all those Aboriginal activists were coming to Canberra to do. Of course, your father, Charles Perkins, is an icon in the Aboriginal rights movement growing up. He was probably just dad. What kind of a man was he from your perspective as his daughter? Um, Yeah, he was just dad and he was a really loving father. He was a beautiful man. He was funny, very affectionate, really funny, quite a sook (laughs) in the way that some men can be big sooks, you know. But 
No, he was brilliant. He was he was a brilliant father, and I miss him so much. Uh, particularly now, as we move towards referendum in this country, um, I miss his strength and his vision. But um, yeah, he was he was the best, and he wasn't necessarily around a lot, and he was always busy. But he really took us with him on that journey. So we had a good home from home life. I mean, I, I should say that at times it was very stressful as well. He brought his stresses into the home. He had a temper, you know, so a few phones fell victim to his um, temper, you know, phones getting smashed on a table or on a wall. But these were things that were, you know, he didn't just have an average day job. These were huge pressures, you know, funding cuts in Aboriginal affairs or the betrayal of national land rights. You know, these are big burning questions for the country and Indigenous Australia. So we understood his stresses and pressures and and sometimes his, you know, outbursts of anger. That was just part of our life and we understood that that's that our home was a sanctuary for him and that in our home the cause was central to everything. Everyone sort of fell in behind that really. But we had beautiful family moments, great car trips, lots of fun together. And he was, yeah, he was a lovely, brilliant dad and I miss him all the time. He would have been really proud of what you're doing now. But when did you first realise he was a big deal? We were all pretty excited when he appeared on television and uh, I was pretty mortified by him occasionally. Like I remember he put out a book. I'm going to use this word not as a, as a swear word, but in the traditional sense of the word. So just those people with sensitive sensitivities. Uh, he put out a book called A Bastard Like Me. When I was a little girl, I was like, why would you call yourself a bastard? Why would you put that on a book? How embarrassing. <laughs> and I, of course, I couldn't realise, you know, I didn't realise then the irony of what he was doing. But yeah, we saw him a lot on television and it you know, in newspapers and press conferences. And we used to follow him in demonstrations, you know, and see him talk at meetings. I mean, we we trailed around after him. So I suppose we always knew that he had a leadership role because we just grew up around that that sort of um, commanding presence that he had. So it was very natural to us. You talked about the home being a bit of an oasis for him. It does bring me to your mother, who was a very big part of creating that oasis and I know has been a big force in your life as well. Um, can you just talk a little bit or reflect on the role that she's played in your family? Uh, yes, well, she's a very private person. She's still alive. I think she's probably 85 now. She's uh, a very dynamic person. I think she's made us all workaholics. <laughs> she managed everything in the house, looked after dad. Finally, when we grew up, she returned to running her own small businesses um, or business or two. She is a very positive person, very um, sort of take no prisoners, sort of um, uh, pragmatic person. She came from a German, uh, originally German farming family sort of in the back blocks of South Australia. So they used to walk to school. She had, I think, 10 brothers and sisters. Um, She'd walk three kilometres to school and back every day. You know, they weren't wealthy by any means. And she was always there for dad um, very strongly. When his kidneys failed, she used to run the dialysis machines. You know, you can imagine that back in the 70s, those dialysis machines were like huge, huge TARDISes, you know. (laughs) 
uh, splashing blood around. So she was she was pretty strong. And when Dad uh, was very ill in hospital, when his kidney transplant failed at the end of his life, you know, she used to sleep on the floor of his hospital room and um, she was there with him for months. Dad said about her that he, when he was very ill at the end, end of his life, he said, uh, your mother, you know, she's she's just the kindest person you'll ever meet, you know, and look after her, which was a lovely thing to say because she was incredibly kind and, you know, she was absolutely there for him, as she is me now. So she looks after my son <laughs> when I'm running around doing things. So none of us would be able to do what we do uh, and have done without her. Of course, you, in a way, I mean, you had a father who whose legacy could have easily cast a shadow. But you have been a trailblazer in your own right. I want to turn now to your groundbreaking career in film. And I might just start because you found yourself executive producer of the SBS Indigenous Unit at the mature age of 21. And I wonder (laughs) when you look back on that, what was that like and where did you kind of get the um, energy for such a big role? Yeah, I'd come from Karma in Alice Springs, the Central Australian Aboriginal Media Association, where I'd trained when I was 18. And unfortunately, they didn't really have the capacity to employ me after the training money ran out, you know, so. That old story. (laughs) Yeah, that old story. Always the trainee, never the bride. Um, So I, I did take up a position at SBS, but the Indigenous unit there was just me at that stage. So it was a unit of one. I didn't really, you know, all the other executive producers were in their 60s and um, all from non-English speaking backgrounds and, and I was sort of plonked in the middle of them and I didn't know how to do much, but I could make programs and I did realise my limitations. So I sought out other people to work with that could help me really realise my ambitions because I think the thing that has always been part of my outlook on life is that I've always had greater ambitions than those around me have had for me. Um, I suppose it's that glass ceiling that we talk about in life and particularly for Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders in the media industry back in those days, which was, you know, the early 90s, the glass ceiling was just doing a small amounts of content once a week and no expectation that anyone would really watch it, no expectation that it would rate um, and no expectation that um, we would get big budgets or awards for our work. And But my ambitions were always bigger, even though I had my own personal limitations. And so I often, yeah, one of my strategies was to seek out people I could collaborate with. So that's what I did at SBS. Yeah, we made the first significant thing I made there was the biggest budget project that had ever been made by Indigenous filmmakers um, shortly after I arrived. So, and continue to push those glass ceilings since that time, which is, I think, what we should do. We want to promote Indigenous excellence in this country and we do not want to be limited by others' expectations of us. Uh, what was the the thing you commissioned, was it? Oh, it was called Blood Brothers, actually, and um, it doesn't seem like much money now, but it was a $1.2 million series because television's so expensive these days. Uh, So it seems like a lot of money, but actually it's not. And it was um, three documentaries, and I made one on the Freedom Ride, actually, and I worked with Dad and I took him back and traced the route of the Freedom Ride that he was involved in uh, at the University of Sydney in 1965. So we went to places like Moree, and Walgett and he told me the stories of how they petitioned the Walgett RSL because Aboriginal ex-servicemen weren't even allowed to get in and have a drink even though they'd served their country and we went to the pools at Moree and he 
he and um, Bob Brown, a non-Indigenous person who stood up for the Indigenous people there, and they explained how that pool was segregated and you could only go in on certain days. And it was a wonderful road trip, actually, with my dad making that film, and I'm quite proud of it. People still watch it. It's still showing in schools, and what we finished it in 19... 93 or something like that. So that's like 30 years ago. It's still being watched. I'm going to confess, not only have I watched it recently, I think I've used it like three times in different things that I've made myself because I often obviously refer to the past rights movement in my own work. So you are still (laughs) providing us with great content. But what drew you into media and filmmaking in the first place? Because there's an interesting thread between that and the interest in providing space for voice and story and, of course, then why you might be so interested in a voice to parliament. Oh, but yes. what drew you <laughs> That little in, project. <laughs> what yeah. drew you into the idea, into uh, media as a career and then sort of into film? Well, I didn't really have a uh, specific intention to go into film or media growing up. Like when you talk to other filmmakers, they say, you know, I, at that moment I sat in the cinema and I realised that I wanted to do this. That wasn't it for me. I um, I just wanted to get back to Alice Springs, actually. I was in Canberra at the time and uh, Dad told me about these traineeships that they were offering and they were flying people in for interviews. And so I thought, oh, and it was for a television presenter job, which I did not want because I've never liked being in front of the camera. Anyway, when I realised that you could get flown in for the interview, I thought, okay, well, there's an airfare to Alice Springs and I'll get there and then I'll work out what I'm going to do next. And so I was 18 at the time. So I got there and I didn't get the job, uh, thankfully, of the TV presenter. They, they said they'd give me another job as a trainee in the television unit making television. And so I was like, oh, okay, great, that sounds cool. And um, it was an amazing Amazing time then at Karma. It really was like the Motown of Indigenous media. It had a record uh, label, radio station. It was broadcasting in six languages, playing music, and then it had this TV production unit as well as a translation service. So it was just a great way to step into Indigenous Australia and the camera uh, was basically like the magic carpet that took me everywhere around the country and it has ever since uh, talking to Indigenous people, telling their stories and it's been just the most wonderful, incredible three decades of um, filmmaking in Australia and I'm, I'm so proud of that, that body of work and the people I've met along the way. So, But now I'm taking time off it. It's the first time I've stopped making films actually Partly, firstly, because the Australian Wars, which was my last project, uh, nearly killed me. (laughs) That's showing on SBS for anyone who hasn't seen it. And partly because this referendum uh, is on and so I've wanted to give my time more to that. I just want to take a little moment to just reflect on your career before we get to the referendum because it is a significant career and it is worth taking a moment to reflect upon. (laughs) And you mentioned the Australian Wars, which was an incredibly important landmark documentary. And, of course, there's the First Australians, which was also groundbreaking Um, documentary series. For you, what has been the drive to tell these stories that have really been a part of important truth-telling? None of them easy stories to tell, but seems to be the space that's drawn uh, drawn you in. Yeah, well, I think that... um... We had a fantastic uh, mentor in Frida Glynn at Karma and she really 
inspired us to, she said to us, you know, you are the conduit for your people to tell stories through and she drilled that into us in the most inspiring way that we've carried that forward. Um, But I think wider than that I've seen the possibility of all those things that my father fought for all of his life and and the leadership and community around him, of course, as well, because it's a very collective effort. I see them come up against brick walls so often uh, because people don't understand in this country what our people have been through. They just really, in the majority of cases, they just do not have any understanding, to be honest. And that is changing. The education system is changing. But people of my generation learnt nothing about Indigenous people, nothing. You know, they didn't learn about the Aboriginal people in their local area. They didn't learn about Aboriginal history. They learnt so little. And I think filmmaking is a wonderful way for people to, at any stage of their life, be able to dip in and understand something. And the power of film uh, and television to be able to move people emotionally. It's something that is not as easily accessible, although books can do that and other works. Film and television can allow people to step into another's shoes and walk in that person's life, to inhabit their life. And it's a very accessible medium. It comes straight into your lounge room. And so it's very powerful force to move people, open hearts, broaden minds, inform. It's it's been a very useful tool for our people who are such a tiny mi- minority in this country, only 3.8%. So to be able to speak to millions of people is very useful. And I think that that understanding that comes when you understand things, when you're aware of the history you understand the experience of another person, you are then more open to hearing what they need done in their community or their country. So I feel like the bigger agenda or the bigger piece of work that underpins Indigenous filmmaking is that understanding element. And that, I think, is what makes it so powerful because it has a driver behind it. It has this this profound passion that Indigenous people bring to their work because they're trying to create understanding and that makes the work very potent. Um, it makes it which what it is today, which is some of the greatest work that's coming out of Australia, is made by Indigenous people. And it's because it has this core passion in it. It has something to say and it makes it urgent and and impactful to the viewer. I think that um, that's been my great motivator, and yeah, it's been a great privilege. Well, it, it and you've, you're so good at it. You've done some of the most important pieces of television and filmmaking, and yet you have paused that because of the referendum. So, Rachel, tell us what is it about this moment in history, this issue, uh, this voice to parliament, this referendum? that has meant that you have down tools and you are dedicating uh, your energy to it? Well, I should firstly say that, of course, people have different views about this and um, I completely respect your listeners' views, which might vary from mine. But can I say that from my point of view, this is the moment of our generation 
and I'm 53. It will not come again in my lifetime, I can assure you of that. This is the moment that Australians get to finally acknowledge the true nature of Australia and that is the nature of Australia in three parts. It's foundational roots, it's ancient heritage, the British tradition, which is our constitution, and, of course, the multicultural element that came later that makes us Australians. It's what it means to be Australian, to be part of those three elements. That's what defines our society, our human existence on this continent in this amazing country of this land we share. And here we have a moment to just, in one simple word, say yes to that. Yes, we are not in denial anymore. Yes, we accept Aboriginal people who we have, over our history, we have scorned and trampled. Yes, we finally accept them. And yes, this is our modern nation. That's what yes means to me for most Australians. But this other element to it, which is why I'm so passionate about it, is what's called the voice. Now, let's be very clear. The voice is just an advisory committee. That's all Indigenous people are asking for in this moment. You don't ha- it's not voting on a treaty. It's not voting on a tax. It's not doing any of those things. It's just setting up an advisory committee so that the 3.8% of the population, the first people, so that they can be heard. And why? Why do they need to be heard? Because they are at the lowest social economic status of any significant group in this country. The lowest. And why should the first people of this country be at the bottom? And they've been at the bottom for generations. And it's got to stop. And Indigenous people have asked for this voice to help lift ourselves out of this ghetto that we're in. Do you know one... One to two of our people live at or below the poverty line. One in two. Do Australians realise that? I don't know whether they do. Because if they did, they might think, yes, they need a voice so that they can talk to government and government listen to the problems they have. And together, if government listened to them, because we do have solutions, maybe, just maybe, We could change the situation that has been like this for generations, for three generations. My family, you know, have been, my dad was born in a native institution, my my grandmother lived in poverty, her mother survived a massacre, you know, that's the only reason she was alive and I'm here today. So surely, surely we can grant an advisory committee to the First People so they can speak to government about their issues. And that's why I'm giving my year to this, but there's only to get this country across the line. So it requires all efforts in this very just cause. That's Rachel Perkins. She's made some of our most important film and television works of fiction and documentary. Rachel grew up between Canberra and Alice Springs. She learned early from her dad, Charles Perkins, how to walk in two very different worlds. Rachel's passionate about the ability of film and TV to transform Australia, the power of stories to move people and progress the lives of First Nations people. But she's taken this year off to throw her weight behind the Yes campaign. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing 
you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, we've got more from my chat with Rachel Perkins and her call to action. But first, here's some music from Paul Kelly with his new song, If Not Now. Too many falling far behind, shut out of the deal. If you called and no one heard you, imagine how you'd feel. This land was never given, it was taken and then sold. But it's ancient songs and stories are a gift greater than gold. Oh, the status quo is busted, let's stop kicking that old can. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? This business that's unfinished, hard time to see it through. If not now, then when? If not us, then who? That's Paul Kelly with If Not Now. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Rachel Perkins is one of Australia's most established filmmakers. She's dedicated her life to telling First Nations stories and sharing our history with broader Australia. Rachel was involved with the Uluru Statement from the Heart and she's dedicated a lot of time and energy since to try and make that request a reality in the form of the voice referendum. What do you say to people within our community who are wondering if this is going far enough and wonder why we're not having a treaty? What's your argument about why this is the, is the right step now? Well, I answered this question actually just a half an hour ago. A woman, Aboriginal woman, health worker said to me, but what about the treaty? Like, why aren't we doing that now? But the truth is our government over the last, what is it, 10 years? has been a conservative government and they have never had treaty on the agenda. Never. So we had to progress something with them, didn't we? And so we progressed constitutional recognition through the voice. And over a decade, you know, we've talked about this now, but it hasn't been just a decade. This has been 50 years. My father... And his brothers, who we call them brothers, but they were boys in the boys' home with him, they helped establish the first voice in 1973, the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. And in five years' time, after five years, it was shut down by that government. And then, because the new government came in, and then they set up their version of it called the National Aboriginal Council. And then the government changed, and so they shut that down again. And then a time passed where there was no Indigenous representative group giving government advice for a long time, and then they created ATSIC. Now, ATSIC, we know, had some significant problems, but it, had a, it was reviewed and it had some good recommendations, but Mark Latham and John Howard shut that down. And then we had the Congress, of First Peoples Congress, and then... That went for five years and then that was shut down. So, and then we had the Indigenous Advisory Council. Sorry to bore listeners, but I tell you what, it, it's, it's pretty boring to us too to have, in my lifetime, five different 
Indigenous advisory groups created. You can imagine the effort that goes into creating them and then they're shut down and what we do is we lose all of that talent, all of the research, all of the evidence base when we have to stand these things up to have them shut down again. So that's why we're saying constitutional enshrinement is important. But in terms of the treaty, it's a different mechanism. So constitutional change can only be done through referendum and that's a vote of the people. Treaties can be done any time and can be done with the government if they have the political will to do so. And we haven't had a government with the political will to do so for a very, very long time. In Victoria, we see that there is a government who does want to do a treaty and that is progressing. But that's taken five years just to appoint uh, the First Assembly. So if you're thinking about it at a Commonwealth level, it's going to take more, at least five years or more to get a treaty if the government has the political will. And there's all these ifs. If they have the political will, it might take 10 years, it could take more, and what's going to be in it? All these questions. Constitutional recognition is upon us right now. It can be done and dusted. And the voice and treaty can also coexist. So, but what's important for the Australian people to know is that what we are voting on is the voice and the recognition of Indigenous people in the constitution. That's what the recognition is. It is the voice. So you don't have to decide on the treaty. There's no tax or, you know, land grab or anything else the no case is saying, those things are not true. The voice has been proven to be politically and legally safe. The Solicitor General has given the advice that it is, it enhances our democratic process and the overwhelming majority of legal experts say that this is a just and practical solution. But, you know, it's easier to create fear and confusion than it is to tell people the facts. That's what we find, don't we? That fear spreads faster, lies spread much faster than the truth. So we certainly have a challenge on our hands to get out to the Australian people and, and tell them the facts. Of course, one of, the, one of the claims made by the No campaign amongst the arguments you've just mentioned is that it's divisive. What's your response to that claim? Well, it didn't have to be divisive, but unfortunately the coalition government chose not to support it. And, of course, now it's being uh, thrown about between the parties as political point scoring, which is what happens to Indigenous affairs all the time. Our trauma and our issues get used to point score And it's just so disappointing that that's the way our issues get treated because in the middle of the arguments, where do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people get left? And that's what we're seeing. So it has been a divisive debate. We would have liked bipartisan support. Aboriginal people spent a lot of time working with the coalition government, trying to get them on board. And at the last minute, they decided not to support it. But being said, there are many, many Liberal voters who support this and there is a Liberals for Yes and the Teals support it and the Greens support it. So actually it has broad support amongst various political parties but I see it 
apart from the political parties and the question of being divisive, I see it as exactly the opposite. I see it as a great unifying moment for our country to finally recognise Indigenous people as a foundational part of our nation in the Constitution. And how is it divisive for Indigenous people to give advice to Parliament? Do you know how many advisory groups Parliament has? So many advisory groups that we don't even know their name. We don't even question that they exist. But they give advice constantly to government. In fact, the Productivity Commission recently, one of the, one of the um, advisory committees to government, recently gave the government some really interesting advice about Indigenous affairs. And I, I have it in my handbag. <laughs> but basically they advised government that their commitment to closing the gap was weak, lacked cohesion and had not come to terms with the change that was required in their operation and the way they do business to seriously address the huge gap that exists between Indigenous people and our fellow Australians on a range of socio-health and economic standards. So the government's own advisory group has said that they are failing Indigenous people. And that says something, doesn't it? So I would argue that if government is failing, why would you possibly consider saying no to what Indigenous people have asked for? Because no is the status quo. No is saying I accept the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men die 10 years younger. Yep, just keep doing what you're doing, government. Keep doing what you're doing and... uh, Let's let's say that we accept uh, imprisonment rates of Indigenous people. That's fine. Just keep doing... Everybody keep doing what you're doing. Except that kidney failure in our remote communities is 20 times higher than the rest of Australian population. Yep, I'm just going to vote for the status quo. Or you could vote yes, which means that let's allow Indigenous people to actually come to the table and give some advice about kidney dialysis treatment. Because I know in Alice Springs... They've got some amazing programs that are turning around the life expectancy of people on dialysis. Now, if only their voices were heard, that could be adapted across the country. I know other programs that are turning around the lives of young Indigenous kids on the streets. That could make a difference if they were heard. That's what we're saying. Vote yes to the possibility of change and hope. Vote no is accepting the status quo of Indigenous people at the bottom rung of the ladder of Australian society. One of the things that I think was striking recently when there were the walks for yes, the number of people that turned out, I think uh, I heard even surprised the organisers. But there was quite a lot of activity overseas as well. And I wonder what your thoughts are. People are very focused on what the voice to parliament means in terms of its impact on Aboriginal people and the policy making and what does it mean about the, the actual mechanics of providing policy. But there is a bigger question about about what it says about Australia as a country, which seemed to be why there was such an international interest on it. From your perspective, what does a yes say about Australia? Well, we know our country is great, right? We love Australia. That's why we all live here and we don't go anywhere else. (laughs) But Australia does have a record that um, international communities are very uh, aware of and 
they can sometimes criticise Australia for its record on the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But should I, I can say that other countries have also been criticised because it's no accident that First Peoples, as they're often called, um, in like Maori in New Zealand and Canada and the US, we find that we have similar social circumstances in those communities, in all those countries, because people don't like to say it, but because of the process of colonisation. Now, we want to move on from that. We want to move forward from that. And the voice is all about the future, not the past. But I think what they will see is that in all these other countries, they have mechanisms, either treaties or constitutional arrangements that acknowledge the special, not separate, as John Howard said, special but not separate status of First Peoples, and they have mechanisms for lifting Indigenous peoples out of that social situation. Now, we don't have that here. And so I think that that will be noted by our, you know, comparable Commonwealth nations at least, and um, they will take a view on that. I don't know what their views will be, but it will be, it will be noticed internationally, absolutely. There's a lot of people who'll be getting their information about The Voice on the mainstream media. There'll be a lot who are getting their information and the views on social media. But you're travelling around the country and talking to people. What are you hearing on the ground? What's your sense of what the temperature is? Well, you know, the polling says obviously there's, you know, the support for it is dropping and that may be true. Our engagement with people is that a lot of people don't know enough about it and that is causing them to vote no or thinking about causing them to vote no and then we have some really strong supporters and then we have people that don't even know that it's referendums happening and then we have hard no's. So the people in the hard no's, they're fine, they're not going to be moved necessarily, they've made up their minds, whatever. The people who are undecided, we say read, please read the provision in the amendment because that is what you are voting on. And let me just tell you the provision. It says, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first people of Australia, so that's the recognition bit, the first point, there shall be a body called the voice. So that's the practical bit. And then the second part says, the voice will give advice or make representation, sorry, I should say, same thing, to the government and the executive on matters that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And the final part, it says the parliament, under the provision of the constitution, will have the power to decide the composition, powers and functions of the voice. And that last bit is to ensure that everybody is absolutely clear that the parliament has the power to decide what the voice does, how it's composed and what it will advise government on. It ensures that Parliament still has parliamentary supremacy. Now, the truth is in those words, and that is what we are voting on. Nothing more, nothing less, just those words. And I suggest that Australians engage in reading that, make the effort to read that, because whatever the no and the yes campaign says, whatever we say, that's what you're voting on. And that tells you exactly what it is. As somebody who's been involved in telling some pretty confronting stories, 
um, which have had at various times their own blowback because people have been confronted by that truth. Has it surprised you that there has been such a negative reaction to the idea of a voice to parliament? I think in this day and age where the media is no longer necessarily balanced but it is opinion and we have a very concentrated power base of media with a certain position, it's very hard for a debate to be equal. And I think that experience, uh, that situation, we're seeing right now. I think the other issue is where you have a imbalance in media, in traditional media, uh, that you also have a social media that is fed, actively fed by robots <laughs> and uh, misinformation. It's very difficult for the population to have clarity because there is a huge, um, powerful network of people who are trying to not give clarity. And it is much easier to confuse and create fear than it is to explain the facts. And I think that is the challenge that we are presented with in this referendum. I do not think that Australia is a racist country, but I do think Australia is very uninformed. A, about constitutions and parliament, and I think they're B, uninformed about the situation of Indigenous Australians and and how we got to this place that we are. And I think that lack of understanding will impact on the vote. And you can see that in the polling. Young people who have had the benefit of a better education, a better understanding of our history in this country, they are in support of the vote. And it declines the older people get. And I put that down to a better education. I think the fact that the no case is saying if you don't know, vote no, is a great disappointment because they are asking Australians to stay uninformed. Stay uninformed on the one right that Australians have in relation to a great power which is changing the constitution. So they're saying they're encouraging the population to be ignorant and not take responsibility of their duties as Australians, which is to really think deeply about the Constitution. I think that is a great disappointment and I think that they will be judged by that in history, that that is what they suggested Australians do, not understand their own Constitution. We've been up front that you're the co-chair of the Yes 23 board, so there's no surprises about that. If someone is listening and they're finding what you're saying persuasive, and they are, but they are finding it hard to find the information that's clear, where would you suggest they go to get a sense of what the arguments are and to make sure they're informed? Well, uh, if you want an unbiased view, and I'm obviously, uh, people would say that I'm biased, I think you should read Anne Toomey's work. Anne Toomey is a constitutional lawyer, a constitutional expert, academic. She has no agenda in this. She's just trying to come up with solutions 
that deal with this uh, constitutional challenge that we have. You could read Kenneth Hayne. He's an ex-High Court judge. Read his work. He's very straightforward. Or go to the Solicitor General's advice. The Solicitor General is the highest legal advisor to the government. He was appointed under the coalition government and his advice is very straightforward. He says that this proposal will enhance our democratic process to the extent of hearing Indigenous voices that have not been heard previously. And he says it's very unlikely that there is any case um, of this voice debilitating our parliament, delaying it, or uh, being appealed to the High Court. Very unlikely. So, you know, Solicitor Generals, the weight of the legal opinion in this country, the Law Council of Australia, all of these leading lights and intellectuals and ex-judges and lawyers and academics all agree that this is not a risky venture, that it is modest and just. So read their opinions and then read the provision and you will see that all it's going to do is make representations to parliament and government. Just give advice. That's it. It is so modest that sometimes I can't believe I'm out spruiking it. <laughs> well, spruiking it you are, and I was actually just going to ask you about that. You've come from behind the camera to uh, be one of the strongest advocates, um, very um, persuasive, passionate advocates on this um, on this issue um, for the yes vote. What has that been like for you? Because you have... As, as I said, you've been a behind-the-scenes person and now you co-chair and you have become one of the more um, high-profile persuasive voices. And how do you keep yourself strong doing such hard, demanding work? Well, you said that I'm persuasive, but I don't mean to be persuasive. I just mean to tell people the facts. I just want to tell them the truth. I want them to make their own minds up because I'm just like, I'm a normal person, right? I don't have five degrees like you. <laughs> I like to think I'm a normal person No, too. you are abnormal. <laughs> you have five degrees. I'm a normal person. I'm not well necessarily well-educated. Um, I have just been around people and talked and listened and heard and thought about this and, and I'm just a citizen of this country who thinks that this is a good idea and I'm Aboriginal as well and I think it's a good idea for my people and I'm Aboriginal, I live in my community in Alice Springs. I see the suffering of my people walks past my door every day. I live right in town. You know, I want things to change. And I think this voice is a possibility of gaining change. So that's why I'm here talking about it. But how do I stay strong? Well, the alternate is just demoralising, that Indigenous people get laws made about us without us from people who don't know anything about us 3,000 miles away in Canberra. I've seen that all my life and I've seen a waste of taxpayers' money on programs rolled out in communities that are not fit for purpose and it's a waste of money for people who need that money so much. You know, remote communities, those are my communities. They're talked about but no-one talks to us. They have press conferences in Alice Springs, but they don't come and see us. They talk about us without us, and that's got to stop because our lives have to change. Our lives have to change in this country. For too long, we've been at the bottom of the barrel, you know? So 
what do I do to keep strong? Well, I have a sleep <laughs> and I'll rest on October the 15th. I'm going to be back home in Alice Springs and in Bantwin, not in the country, and I'll be with my people and that's where I will take solace. And I hope Australia, I seriously hope Australia rises to this occasion of the invitation that's been put to them, a very gracious invitation from the first people of this country to those who've come here and share our country, a land we all love. We just want to improve our lives and we're asking for this hand up so that we can help ourselves out of this problem. It's a modest and just proposal and it's not much to ask. So I have big hopes that Australia uh, can overcome fear that is being um, deliberately set upon us and see the truth of this proposal. Well, Rachel, I've known you for a very long time, so long that it would be impolite to actually say, I think. But I have never, you I have never mind. once... I don't mind being you... old, uh, getting towards an old person. Not elder status yet. No, young aunties, that's what we are. <laughs> young aunties, yeah. yes. Never once have you struck me as ordinary. Thank you so much for your work, for your wisdom, for your words, for your voice and for spending time with us on Speaking Out. Thank you for giving me the space. I appreciate it. That's Rachel Perkins, one of Australia's most prominent film and television directors. She's taking a break from making stories for the screen to convince Australians to vote yes at the referendum on October 14. Rachel's co-chair of Yes 23. We'll leave you with a song from one of Rachel Perkins's films, Brand New Day. This is Seeds That You Might Sow by Dan Sultan. the show for now. Join us again next time as we draw closer to the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Sarah Allerley and Jay McAllister. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.